here. Oh, the place looks a bit empty now without the kids. <laughs> Much emptier. <coughs> All right. Uh, as was read in the scripture reading for us, turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 21. Now, given that uh, I'm in the middle of um, report writing time for school and um, I was sick at the start of this week, I pulled out an old message. Um, but last time I preached, this one was eight years ago. Um, so I don't think many people would remember it if you were here eight years ago. Um, but pulled out an old one. Um, yeah, eight years ago I was in First Samuel 21. Now I'm in Second Samuel chapter 10. So um, we'll read for the first two verses again just before we get started and then opening prayer. So 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 to 2 says, Then came David to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David, and said unto him, Why art thou alone, and no man with thee? And David said unto Ahimelech the priest, The king hath commanded me a business, and hath said unto me, Let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee, and what I have commanded thee. And I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. Let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to your house today, Lord. We uh, thank you for this chance we've got to gather around your word, Lord. I do pray that uh, this message would be a blessing and encouragement to us all here, um, to those that aren't with us in presence but can watch online, Lord. We do pray that you would uh, just uh, use me for your glory today, Lord. Give me wisdom, um, clarity, and calm my nerves. And Lord, we pray that you would just um, speak through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, when I was thinking about um, pulling out an old message, there's a couple of messages from 1 Samuel that still come back to my mind from time to time, and this was one of them. And I thought, if I still remember something from eight years ago, which I've got a terrible memory, I thought, um, obviously, the Lord used it for me, so I thought it might be a blessing to, um, to us as well here. So um, this is what we're going to look at now, this passage. Now, it was said once that a store manager heard his assistant, sales assistant, tell a customer, no, ma'am. We haven't had any for a while, and we probably won't be getting any more anytime soon. Horrified, the manager came running over to the customer and said, of course we'll have some soon. We placed an order last week. After the customer left, the manager drew the assistant aside and said, never, he snarled, never, never, never say we're out of anything. Say we've got it in order, got, sorry, got it on order, and it's coming. Now, what was it that she wanted? Rain, the assistant said. And lying today, lying seems to be a very common thing that's shrugged away as something that's not very important, something that's not often thought about twice, and in this case, even sometimes encouraged um, by some people. In, in this case, it was encouraged for this sales assistant to lie, and that's the case with a lot of people. When I first preached this message, I looked at a survey in England that was done about lying, and it found that the average man will lie three times a day, while the average woman will lie two times a day. And in that same survey, they found 30% of men and 25% of women said they don't feel any guilt about lying. One of the most common lies that they noted in that survey was also, nothing's wrong, I'm fine. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's something that I'm sure we've all said and something that we probably don't even give any thought to. However, if it's not the truth, it is a lie. And lying is a dangerous habit. You know, it's been said that no one has a good enough memory to lie. And that's true, isn't it? Because if we lie, one lie often leads to another lie and another lie and needs to be covered up by more lies and eventually things get found out. You know, lies will only lead to hurt and to problems. 
You know, if we could completely comprehend, though, just how much God hates lying, I think we would make sure it has no part in our lives and we would treat it more seriously than what we often do. Have a look with me over in Proverbs chapter 6. Some verses I'm sure we all know very well. Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 to 19. I'm sure we know these verses. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, there's lying, and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that deviseth wicked imaginations, feet that be swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. These things the Lord hates, and lying is not in there once lying is in there twice this shows us how serious lying is to god and how much god hates it now in this passage today we're going to see a lie that was told and the consequences of it but also importantly we're going to see that our god is also a gracious god so the first point that we see is the glaring deception the glaring deception now we've read verses one to two but we're going to read verses now three and eight as well in first Samuel 21 Verse 3 um, says as well, Now therefore, what is under thine hand, give me five loaves of bread in mine hand, or what there is present. Down in verse 8 it says also, And David said unto Ahimelech, And is there not here under thine hand a spear or a sword? For I have neither brought my sword nor my weapon with me, because the king's business required haste. Now David here, I'll uh, give you a little bit of a background, because uh, obviously last time preachers was going through first Samuel but this is just after uh, when Samuel has had to become a fugitive from King Saul so in the previous three chapters um, King Saul has tried to kill David you know he becomes jealous of him because people are singing uh, the songs about David in the streets where Saul has killed his thousands David his tens of thousands um, Saul becomes jealous and memory tries to spear him with his um, spear throw the javelin at him David escapes but then in the last three chapters there's multiple times where Saul has tried to kill him comes to the point where we have that meeting between David and Jonathan in the previous chapter in chapter 20 where uh, remember Jonathan what goes to find out if his father is still angry at David and they make a bit of a covenant there um, and we have the shooting of the arrows I'm sure most of you are probably familiar with that story Jonathan comes out to the field and shoots some arrows, tells his servant boy, the arrows are beyond you, keep on going. And that was code for David who was hiding that, yes, Saul is still angry and still wants to kill David. They come out together, um, have their final goodbyes, make a covenant together, and then off David goes. And this chapter 21 is straight after this. So David has left, left his home. He's a fugitive. He's um, wanted by the king. He's, um, king Saul is out to kill him. And he's had to flee in a hurry. That's where David is at. So David in this passage here, he comes to a place called Nob, which is believed to be about 12 miles from Jerusalem, about the same distance from Gibeah, where David had fled from. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 32, don't bother turning there, but it says, As yet shall he remain at Nob that day, he shall shake his hand against the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Now, this tells that you're able to see Jerusalem from this place of Nob and where most um, historians place Nob on maps. It was within uh, viewing distance of Jerusalem. It wasn't very far away from it on the hill. And the point of this geography lesson is that back then, obviously, the only way news could travel was by word of mouth or by messengers, wasn't it? And given that Nob was very close proximity to Jerusalem and to Gibeah, 
it would have uh, people would have heard what was going on. Rumors would have spread around, and people at Nob would have heard what was happening as people travelled between the two places. And I'm sure they would have heard rumors of what had transpired between King Saul and David. That there was a some sort of um, issue going on, and whether they knew the details or not, I'm sure they would have heard there at Nob that King Saul had tried to kill David at least once or maybe multiple times. They wouldn't have heard the final news now that David had fled and now he's a full fugitive on the run, but they would have known there was an issue there. You know, this will sort of come into play in a little bit. Now, Nob was also the city of priests. We're told in chapter 22, verse 19, it says, and Nob, the city of priests. We won't bother reading the rest of that verse yet. So it's the city of priests, and David has come here for help. He knew that he had to go into hiding as a fugitive, and he probably didn't know who he could trust or where he could go to find help. He obviously needed some supplies, though. He needed food. He, we find out he didn't have a weapon with him. He needed some supplies like food and, and a weapon. And so he's come here um, to Nob, to the, to the priest, to ask for help, probably thinking that this is one of the last places left that he can get some help. But as David comes to Ahimelech for help, Ahimelech is afraid, which we read in verse 1. It says, Then came David to Nob and Ahim, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David and said unto him, Why art thou alone and no man with thee? Now it seems here that this is this David turning up alone has sparked fear in Ahimelech. You know, maybe possibly he has, like we said, maybe he has heard rumors given his close proximity to Gibeah and Jerusalem. Maybe he's heard rumors of what's gone on between King Saul and David. And now he's thinking that something's not quite right here. Maybe he's wondering if David is on the run from Saul or the enemy of the king. I'm not too sure, but this has sparked fear in him. You know, something with David turning up here was very wrong, was very out of place. It was strange. But what was so strange about it? Well, we've got to remember who David is. David is the king's son-in-law, a very important man, an important position in the army and captain of the army. He He would have had guards with him wherever he went, a big crowd, soldiers and servants and everyone following him around. It even talks in Psalms about how he would go to the um, high place with the with a multitude. He had always had a crowd around him, especially when he was travelling. But now, when he comes to Nob, he is alone, and this was strange. Ahimelech knows it's strange. He knows something is not right here. You know, David being alone here does cause a bit of a problem. Where da- um, Ahimelech says, "Why are you alone?" Go with me over to Matthew chapter twelve. Matthew chapter twelve. We'll do a little bit of flicking around today. Matthew chapter 12, and we'll read verses 3 and 4. Now, this is Jesus talking about this account of David coming to Nob. Verse 3, it says, But he said unto them, Have you not read what David did when he was unhungered, and they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests? These verses make it pretty clear to us that David had some people with him. Have a look also in our passage we're reading, um, 1 Samuel chapter 21. In verses 4 and the start of verse 5, it says, And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread under mine hand, but there is hallowed bread. If the young men have kept themselves at least from women. And David answered the priest and said, Of a truth, women have been kept from us. 
about these three days since I came out. These verses indicate to us that there were some people with David. It's talking in the plural. David saying that we and us. And in Matthew, Jesus himself says that the men that were with David. You know, so how come Ahimelech says, why are you alone? Well, many commentators simply just uh, believe that when he's saying, why are you alone? He's referring to why is he here without the big crowd that he normally has? Why is he here without his guards? Why is he here without his servants? Why is he here without the big crowd that would always follow him, particularly when he was um, traveling? So he would have had a couple of men with him, but not many. We know that there's not many because when he asked for provisions in verse 3, he says, Now therefore, what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread in mine hand, or what there is present. Now we know five loaves of bread is not our loaf of bread like we have today. It would have been little round flat bread that they had. He's asking for five of them, which is not going to feed very many men, is it? It's not as though he's got a dozen men with him. He possibly could have had two or three men with him which when you compare it to a host of guards and, and servants and everyone else that were normally with him, um, it would seem like he is alone. Where's the crowd Ahimelech is asking? So he was virtually alone here compared to normal. And Ahimelech knows that something is not right and he's afraid from it. You know, David, though, does not want him to know that he's an enemy of the king. You know, in the back of David's mind, he's probably thinking, if Ahimelech knows what's happened, that I'm a fugitive on the run, either A, he could turn me over to King Saul, or B, he's going to refuse to help me. So he doesn't want Ahimelech to know, and this is where we find the glaring deceit. Let's read again in verse 2 at David's response, when Ahimelech is afraid and says to him, Why are you alone, no man with thee? This is David's response. And David said to unto Ahimelech the priest, The king hath commanded me a business, and hath said unto me, Let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee, and what I have commanded thee. And I have appointed my servants to such and such a place, is what he tells him. Drop down to verse 8. And David said to Ahimelech, And is there not under thine hand a spear or sword? For I have neither brought my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. This is David's glaring deceit, his lie. He plainly lies to priest, the priest here, to Ahimelech the priest, about why he's here with such few men, why he doesn't have the large crowd with him. He doesn't know who he can trust. He doesn't know if Ahimelech would help him or turn him over to the king or not. So he lies about it. He tells Ahimelech that he's on a secret mission from the king that no one can know about. And that's why he sent his guards to such and such a place. Is exactly what he says. And that's why he's alone. He's trying to explain it. He also explains why he's asking for a weapon. He doesn't have his weapon because the king's business required haste. He's basically saying to Ahimelech, the king sent me on a very important secret mission that no one's allowed to know about. I'm not allowed to tell anyone what I'm doing, but I had to leave straight away. And that's why all my men, they're in such and such a place. I can't even tell you where they are. It's all a big secret. But I had to leave in a hurry, so I don't have any provisions with me, is what David's telling him. You know, it was a straight out lie. We can't excuse it as anything less. Did David need to lie, though? Of course not. In the back of his mind here, he's thinking he did. He's thinking, if I don't lie to Ahimelech, I'll be turned over to King Saul, or he won't help me and I need provisions. But he didn't need to. In chapters 18 to 20, like I've just mentioned, King Saul has tried to kill David countless times. He's tried to spear him through with a javelin a couple of times. He's tried to send David to an impossible fight against the Philistines 
um, to kill them. And David's killed double the amount that um, King Saul thought he would. He's tried to have Jonathan and his servants kill David. He's tried to kill David in his house. And he's been let down out of the window by his wife. And she's put, um, it's kind of comical in a way, really. She's put the goat's hair and things in his bed to make it look like he's still in bed. So when the guards come in, they drag him out and he's not in there. It's, it's just on and on. It's, it seems like a bit of an episode of Roadrunner in those last three chapters. How many times King Saul tries to kill him, but he can't. Because David is God's appointed king. He is the next future king of Israel. God is not done with him. And while ever God's got this purpose for David, David's invincible. No one can hurt him. No one can kill him. He is under God's protection. So did he need to lie? Of course not. He didn't need to lie. God would have found a different way to help him out had he have told Ahimelech the truth. He could have told Ahimelech the truth and said, listen, this is what's happened. And I'm on the run from King Saul. Will you help me? Then it's up to Ahimelech's choice. He can choose to help David and still provide him with food and a weapon, or he can refuse or hand him over or say, I want no part of it. He could have chosen to do something, but even if he didn't help him, God would have found another way to help David. You know, Proverbs 12:22 says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but they that deal truly are his delight. Proverbs 19:19 says, A false witness shall not be unpunished. Lying here always comes with consequences, and David was about to find this out. He should have trusted in God, but his focus was on the world around him. His focus was on the fact that he was in constant danger of being killed, the fact that he was hungry and needed supplies and on the run, didn't know who he could trust. No doubt this was a tough time for him. No doubt this was a hard situation. I don't don't think I can begin to imagine how hard it would be to be in that situation he's in. But he took his eyes off the Lord, looked at the situation around him, and he fell into sin. A bit like when Peter took his eyes off the Lord and started to sink when he was walking on water. You know, lying is a sin that is hated by God. It's an abomination, we're told. We need to make sure that it has no part in our lives. You know, the verse in Proverbs, like we read, says that it will not go unpunished. And we'll see that in our third point, that David was going to realize that. But David took his eyes off the Lord and fell into sin. You know, when we take our eyes off the Lord and stop trusting in God when things are tough, when things are hard, we will fall into sin as well. And then make sure that we trust in God in the tough times as well as in the good times. That brings us to our second point, grace demonstrated. The glaring deceit and now grace demonstrated. Now David came to Nob to seek supplies and he asked for bread and he asked for weapon as we saw. Let's have a look now in verses 3 to 6 at at what happens after he asks for these things. It says, Now therefore, what is under thine hand, give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or what there is present. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread under my hand, but there is hallowed bread. If the young men have kept themselves at least from women. And David answered the priest and said to him, Of a truth, women have been kept from us about these three days since I came out. And the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in a manner of common, yea, though it was sanctified this day in the vessel. So the priest gave him hallowed bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread that was taken from before the Lord to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. <clears throat> so David here asked for his five loaves of bread, but there is no bread available, no common bread. So that means there's no normal bread available in the, um, at the tabernacle there. All that was available was holy bread or the show bread. 
And we're not going to take time to read it, but back in Leviticus 24, we're told all about the showbread and how it worked. But uh, each Sabbath day, the priest would take 12 um, fresh cakes of unleavened bread, which was the showbread, and take it inside to um, the holy place and put it in two rows of six on top of the table of showbread. And it would be left there until the following Sabbath day. On the following Sabbath day, it would be replaced with fresh bread. And then the old bread was to be removed and to be eaten by the priest and his immediate family in the holy place. And we know from verse 6 that we've just read in um, 1 Samuel that this day that David came was the Sabbath day because it talks about the, the bread had just been replaced with the fresh bread. So this showbread had just been taken out, the new showbread had been taken in. And at this point in time, Ahimelech and his immediate family had not yet eaten the, um, the showbread. So Ahimelech, he seemingly reluctantly at first, offers the showbread to David and his men on the provision that they've at least kept themselves clean from women, to which David replies that they are, and Ahimelech gives him the bread. But, hang on, we're told in Leviticus and in Matthew that the showbread was not to be eaten by the priests and his family. And Jesus himself, in those verses we read in Matthew chapter 12, says that it's not lawful for anyone to eat it apart from the priest. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, and Jesus says it's not lawful for anyone else to eat it. However, we need to have a look at this whole passage and see what Jesus is talking about here, which won't take long. But if we start at verse 1, it becomes pretty clear. At the time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were unhungered and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they, came, they said to him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful, to do upon the Sabbath day. But he said unto them, Have you not read what David did when he was unhungered, and they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them which were with him, but only for the priests? Jesus and his disciples in this passage were walking through some cornfields on the Sabbath or some grain fields, and they were obviously hungry. So they picked some ears of corn and began to eat them, at which the Pharisees got upset. And said, Jesus, did you see what your disciples just did? That's not lawful for them to pick that food on the Sabbath day, which was breaking one of the um, ceremonial laws. You know, Jesus then replies with this illustration of David. And the point of this illustration that Jesus gave was to show that ceremonies and rituals were not to come before a person's well-being. You know, the ritual stated that the showbread could only be eaten by the priests, but if the well-being of someone meant that they needed to eat the showbread, then that was fine. That was the priority. And David was in need here. Don't bother turning there, but in Hosea chapter 6, Hosea chapter 6, it says uh, in verse 6, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Then also in 1 Samuel chapter 15, it also says, in verse 22, And Samuel said, Have the Lord a great delight in birth offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. Now, the point of these two passages that I just read for you is that some things are more important than the rituals and the ceremonies and these um, ceremonial laws. The well-being of someone is, is one of these things. 
Yeah, so God, he demonstrated grace to David here. He demonstrated grace in that he supplied him with bread, even though David had lied. Now, it's only by God's grace that he obtains his bread. I mean, you think about the situation. It's no coincidence here. David could have turned up a little bit later in the day and Ahimelech the priest would have already eaten the bread with his family. There would be no bread for them at all. God could have arranged things so that he turned up on the day after the Sabbath or the day before the Sabbath. Then there'd be no bread. He could have turned up before it was replaced. Then there'd be no bread. Ahimelech could have just plainly refused to help him out and didn't even offer him the showbread. That could have happened. None of these things happen though, and it's not a coincidence, it's not a mistake. This is God's grace in David's life. God was providing for him even though David had lied. There was no coincidence here. Now God also demonstrated his grace in supplying David with a weapon. Let's read verses 8 to 9. I've already read verse 8, we'll read it again. And David said unto Himelech, there is, And is there not here under thine hand a spear or sword? For I have neither brought my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom thou slewest in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If thou wilt take that, take it, for there is no other save that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it me. David here is also in need of a weapon, a sword or a spear, so he asks Ahimelech if there is one there. And he's in the tabernacle. Why would there be a weapon in the tabernacle? Well, normally there wouldn't be. Nowhere, no reason that would be there, there to be to keep a weapon in the tabernacle. But it just so happens, by God's grace, not coincidence, that Goliath's sword is there. The same one that David used to finish off Goliath. David, when he beat Goliath, gave it back to the Lord. And now the Lord was giving it back to David. Another act of grace by God. And David says that he will take it. He says that there is none like it. Now, obviously, there was none like it because of its size and its weight, how big it was, but also there'd be none like it because of what it would remind David. I, I, I imagine that carrying that sword around with him would be a constant reminder of how he defeated Goliath and how good God was to him, how great God is, that he can trust God. And straight away, I thought, though, how could David use Goliath's sword? Isn't that going to be too big? That's not very practical to carry around. I know he cut off Goliath's head with it, but surely carrying that thing around... Now, we're not told actually how big Goliath's sword was, but going off the rest of the stuff, we can figure out it's pretty big. The, the head of his spear is believed to weigh about eight to nine kilograms, just the head of his spear, and his armor coat weighed between 60 and 70 kilograms. So it's only logical to assume that his sword was also big and heavy. I think, though, at times we get the wrong picture of David in our minds. He's not a scrawny little shepherd boy like a lot of... Um, picture books and Bible books making out to be easy. He's a soldier. He's a man of war. In chapter 18, him and his men slay 200 Philistines and there's hundreds more that he's killed in battle. He's a man of war. Psalms 18, you can turn over there if you like. Psalms chapter 18, we get another bit of an idea of how strong David is here. This strength obviously is from God. God has blessed him with strength so that he can accomplish what he needs to in life. Um, wouldn't be much of a soldier back in these days if he wasn't strong so god bless him in strength in psalm 18 verse 32 to 34 it says it is god that girdeth me with strength and maketh my way perfect he maketh my feet like hinds feet or like deer's feet and setteth me upon high places 
He teacheth my hands to war, so that a bow of steel, well that's talking about a bow of bronze, is broken or bent in my, by my arms. David here is pretty strong. He's saying, God's given me all this strength. He's made my feet like deer's feet. He's given me strength so that I can bend steel with my arms. He's, he's a strong fella. Carrying around David's uh, Goliath's sword would have been a bit cumbersome, but he would have been able to handle it. Now we see here, though, God's grace, don't we? David is on the run in a time of despair. He's afraid. And that fear caused him to sin and to lie instead of trusting in God. But God was still gracious to him. God provided him with the food he needed and the weapon, a weapon that would serve as a continual reminder to him of how great God is, not just a normal weapon. You know, God didn't just chuck him out because he'd sinned. You know, we serve a gracious God and I'm glad that God doesn't throw us away when we sin. Now, I'm not saying that we can live in sin because of God's grace. Absolutely not. Romans 6 teaches us, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. We can't continue in sin thinking, yeah, God will forgive us every time. That's not how it works. Our sin obviously affects our relationship with God. It affects how close we are walking with God. It affects that, but God doesn't throw us out. God gives us grace. He gives us mercy, just like he did with David. You know, John 1, uh, 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We serve a truly gracious God. And David experienced the grace of God here when he needed it most. We need to thank God for his grace and mercy in our life. That when we fall, when we stumble, when we fall into sin, he doesn't cast us out. Yes, sin comes with punishment and it affects our relationship with God, but he's not done with us. God shows us grace and mercy and will take us back and, and will still bless our lives and use us. And that brings us to our last point, the guilt develops, is the last point. This is where David now pays for the consequences of his sin. Yeah, lastly, we see that guilt develops in David's heart. He sinned when he lied. God was gracious in providing his needs still, but now he's going to face the consequences of his sin. We're not going to read the whole thing because we're actually going to touch on things from chapter 22 now as well, but just read a few verses. In verse 7, which we've skipped over up until now, says in verse 7, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chiefest of the herdmen that belonged to Saul. So there's a servant here of Saul's uh, at the tabernacle when David comes, and he sees what's going on between David and Ahimelech. I'm not going to take time to read uh, the rest of this, but in the rest of chapter 21, the story goes that David then flees. We've got the part of the story where he goes to Gath, uh, for protection, makes a bit of a mistake there and pretends to be mad uh, with his dribble and scratching on the door and all that so that they kick him out because um, he's fearful. And then he goes to the cave of Adullam where he's then met by his family and uh, brethren and by some other close friends, um, 400 people, and he has his little um, band together there with him. Um, but after this, this is how the story goes with um, what happens with Doeg. Let's look over in chapter 22 verse 9. We're going to read a fair few verses here, but this will tell us what happened with Doeg. Then answered Doeg, this is after Doeg left the tabernacle. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, which was set over the servants of Saul, and said, he's talking of Saul here, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab. And he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him victuals or supplies, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. 
Then the king sent to call Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all his father's house, and the priests that were with him, uh, that were in Nob. And they came, all of them, to the king. And Saul said, Here now thou, son of Ahitab. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said unto him, Why have you conspired against me, thou, the, thou and the son of Jesse, in that thou hast given him bread and a sword, and hast inquired of God for him, that he should rise against me to lie in wait at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who is so faithful among all thy servants as David, which is the king's son-in-law, and goeth at thy bidding, and is honourable in thine house? This is where Ahimelech saying he was... David was doing what you told him to, as far as I knew. Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Be it far from me. Let not the king impute anything unto his servant, nor to all the house of my father. For thy servant knew nothing of all this, less or more. And the king said, Thou shalt surely die, Ahimelech, and all thy father's house. And the king said unto the footman that stood about him, Turn and slay the priest of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And because they knew when he fled and did not show it to me. For the servant of the king would not put forth their hand to fall upon the priest of the Lord. And the king said to Doeg, Turn thou and fall upon the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned and he fell upon the priest and slew on that day four score and five persons that did wear a linen ephod. And Nob the city of the priest smote he with the edge of the sword both men and women and children and sucklings and oxen and asses and sheep with the edge of the sword. Pretty horrific, pretty terrible, what Saul has commanded um, his servants and then Doag to do when they wouldn't do it. Basically here though, what happens is Saul called Ahimelech and his family from Nob when he found out that they had helped David and he confronted them about it, to which Ahimelech replied that he didn't know that David was an enemy of the king. He tells him that David, he thought David was there on his business tells him what David had told him, that David said he was there on a secret mission from you. I thought he was helping you. And he says to Ahimelech, uh, to Saul, what, what other faithful servant do you have besides David? He's saying, David's your most faithful servant. He's your son-in-law. I thought he was there on your business. I didn't know he was an enemy of the king, to which Ahimelech wouldn't have. Why would he have reason to not believe what David had said? When David said, I'm on the king's business, I'm there in a hurry, I need some help, I need some food. Ahimelech was not to question him. He's not to question the king's business, the king's son-in-law, his most faithful servant, the captain of his army. He would have believed him, and, and he did believe him. So he says to him, Saul, I knew nothing of this. I didn't know what was going to happen. But this is not good enough for Saul. And Saul then orders the death of not only Ahimelech, but his entire family, all the priests. Or was it there? He, he, uh, Doeg killed four score and five persons. There's 85 people that he killed on that, that were the priests on that day, plus women, plus children, plus all of the animals at Nob. This was quite a horrible and tragic thing that came about from David's lie, wasn't it? That's what it came from. Have a look in verses 20 to 23. It says this, And one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David, so one has survived. And Abiathar showed David that Saul had slain the Lord's priests. And David said unto Abiathar, I knew it that day, when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I 
have occasioned or caused the death of all the persons of thy father's house. Abide thou with me, fear not, for he that seeketh my life seeketh thy life, but with me thou shalt be in safeguard. You know, we're told here that David knew that this was his fault. He knew that the death of all of these people was, was his fault. He saw Doeg there that day, we're told. We're not told that earlier in the passage, but now David reveals that he saw Doeg there and he knew who Doeg was. He knew that he was a servant of Saul and he says, I knew that he would go and tell Saul what would happen. This means that he knew that Ahimelech would be in trouble for helping him. He knew that Doeg would run back and tell Saul and Saul would be angry and, Doeg, and um, that Ahimelech would be charged with treason effectively for helping an enemy of the king. David knew this. Yet he was selfish at the time. He knew Ahimelech would get in trouble and possibly killed for it, but he only thought of himself. He only thought of the danger he was in, the trouble he was in, everything that was going wrong in his life. He forgot to trust in God and he lied to Ahimelech. And that lie caused the death of him, his family, all the priests, the women, the children and so on. And what a horrible result of his lie. And imagine David's guilt and agony over this, knowing that that one little lie, one little lie that, that so many times we think it's only a little lie. Some people would say it's a little white lie. It doesn't do any harm. Surely in this case, a lot of people would think David's lie was justified. If he didn't lie to Ahimelech, he's going to be turned over to King Saul and killed or not helped and then he, he doesn't have any provisions. Surely a lot of people would think David's justified in lying. It doesn't matter how small the lie is, it's a lie. And this lie came with big consequences. I just can't imagine David's guilt when he has found this out and, and he had to live with that. You know, did David have a choice? Of course he did. When he saw Doeg there, he could have trusted God, he could have left. He could have saw Doeg and thought, no, this isn't worth it and leave. Trust God to provide for him another way. He could have perhaps told Ahimelech what was going on in secret away from Doeg. Perhaps then Ahimelech would have uh, still helped him in secret so Doag knew nothing of it, had nothing to tell Saul. Perhaps Ahimelech would have not wanted to help him and send him on his way. We don't know. I do know, though, that God would have helped him, wouldn't he? God would have provided his needs. God would have kept him safe. And had David had trusted God that day and not told that lie, all of those priests, women and children would have still been alive. That was a very costly lie that David told. And I think sometimes we forget the seriousness of lying and just how much God hates it. You know, David chose to lie, to deceive Ahimelech, and now he had to live with that guilt, knowing he was responsible for all of those deaths. Now, let's not forget the seriousness of lying. Remember at the start, we read these things, doth the Lord hate? Lying is in there twice. Not only once, but twice. It is a serious thing to God. It doesn't matter how small our lie is. If it's not the truth, it's a lie. And our lying will not go unpunished. But let's also not forget to praise God because we have a gracious God. A God who doesn't cast us out as soon as we've lied. A God who doesn't cast us out when we stumble and fall. He will still provide for us and look after us. But we need to confess our sins to him and turn to him. But let's remember today the seriousness of lying. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day. We thank you for... Uh, this passage in Saul and although in, in Samuel, sorry, and although it's got an incredibly sad ending, um, teaches us a very valuable lesson, Lord, of how serious you take lying, 
that it's not something that we can just shrug off as, oh, it's only a little white lie or it doesn't matter or I had to say that thing. Lord, let us speak truth um, as you are truth, Lord. Tell, tell others the way things are and, and uh, let us remember that lying does not go unpunished, that it's uh, an abomination unto you, Lord. And let us also remember, though, and praise you that you are a gracious God you still care for us and provide for us even though we stall, uh, fall and stumble Lord um, and that you forgive us and we thank you for this. Pray the blessed rest of our time in Jesus name. Amen.